Hello, everybody, and welcome to Lost Explorers. My name is J. David Osborne. That is Chris Sagdissim. Chris, how are you doing this evening? David, I'm better for talking with you and uh, our listeners. Uh, honestly, though, I'm a little bit... Uh, well, it was the first day back teaching, and I, I really feel it. You know, it uh, lots of fires to put out and problems to solve. And I don't know, it... It's no one thing, you know, mm. it's a bunch of things, but you've been back and you're in the same sort of situation. So what's, what's your scene like? Well, as I was telling you off mic, today was a sub-zero cold day. So the superintendent allowed for school to be optional for kids. So of course, nobody really showed up. It was sort of a busted day, but you know, you and I were talking, and I wanted to start the show off with this because if listeners haven't heard Chris's idea for a new way of doing education, I recommend you go back, scroll down about four or five episodes, and look at the descriptions because it'll be in the description, and listen to that episode. Because the more that I do this, the more I'm becoming convinced that education as we have it right now is just not lining up with how the kids of 2024 uh, live. Or I mean, you bring up in that episode the fact that, you know, if everybody has a smartphone, it becomes less and less valuable to memorize facts because ChatGPT can do that for you. Now, mm -hmm. you have Google, you have ChatGPT. Facts are not that important. I would argue math has its importance. And I think what I do in English has its importance. But a lot of it is just if they're going to not come to school, not keep up with work because they have no interest in doing so. And then uh, when it finally comes down to the wire, copy all of their writing off of chat GPT and hand it into me. Everybody's wasting their time. And what yep. what's what's good about your prescription for what to do is that it shifts the focus from this, you know, eight hours a day, uh, sit in a classroom and learn things, quote unquote, to outdoorsmanship, uh, being out in nature, going on hikes, uh, learning how to work with your hands, learning crafts, basically. I just really think it would be hard for people who are not in education. It would be hard to sell this idea because they don't see what we see every single day. But when I go into work, whether I like the kid or not is neither here nor there. What I see is about 90% of those kids just shouldn't be there. They shouldn't be there. Yep. I mean, yep. why are they there? They could have, ended their, uh, their their school career at about eighth or ninth grade, become an apprentice somewhere, and be better off for it, and just not waste anybody's time. Well, this was, you know, the way the world looked at things for a very long time, mm -hmm. you know? I mean, the apprenticeship concept goes way back to the craft guilds of Europe, 
Yeah. And it goes back to family and community organization and it had some really strong sociological reasoning behind it. But it was a deep part of the British system throughout the Commonwealth. Australia was deeply committed to the uh, apprenticeship idea. America, a little bit less so, we started to fetishize the classroom. I mean, to some extent, I liked your introduction because my suggestion is entirely skills and project-based rather than uh, the kind of tragic academic focus, which is we both know and anyone in, in, in schooling knows is, is hardly academic at all. But a lot of it starts with the problem of the classroom. And my classrooms, uh, ironically, they're, but I'm teaching, um, it, it, it's very uh, common for me to be in this one building. It's named after the former president, the longest serving president of UNLV, who for reasons unknown to me was a real nemesis problem when I was uh, at the Black Mountain Institute. She was uh, became the director of that. And I don't have any idea why she took a disliking to me. Um, I did do a couple of reading tours because I had new books out then. But I had, you know, thanked Black Mountain. I'd been, you know, I always thought I was doing what I was supposed to be doing as a fellow. And the irony of her uh, name being on this very central and a very used building is that it is simply a nightmare to teach in. It's a terrible building. It's alienating. It's disheartening. There's nothing good about it. It's poorly constructed. And in many ways, I think these architectural structures are mm -hmm. so prominent in the school in the student experience. And why why wouldn't they be? You know, they're they're prominent in the faculty experience. And their death, their death of the mind, their death of the spirit. Um, it, it's not working on so many fundamental levels, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I just, I mean, I talk to the kids and I ask them what they want to do after they get out of high school. These are juniors and very few of them have any real idea of what they want to do. Well, if the curriculum was skills-based and project-based, I'll bet you they'd figure it out much quicker. Because, you know, as much as I would like to think that there's just some kind of trick to get children to enjoy reading, if they're 16 years old and they don't like it, I'm not going to convince them to like it. The, no, the, 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 damage, the damage has already been done. Um, because what I found is that the kids who came in and would bring a paperback to class, you know, and read when they finished their work, they're doing fine Yeah, because they already like it. And the kids who don't, they're 16 years old, man. I mean, I don't know what kind of English teachers they had in the past. They might've been good. They might've been, if I'm giving the benefit of the doubt, they might've been good, but it's like, I don't know. It's It can be like pulling teeth when you assign Jurassic Park, which you think is a, you know, a middle ground 
very popular film, a huge IP that everybody knows. And they come in today and they say, you know, we're four chapters in and they say, this book is boring. And I say, I don't know what to tell you mm. at that point. If you think Michael Crichton's, you know, 100 million copies selling bestseller that spawned this huge IP is boring, then prepare to not have fun for the rest of my class because I'm done trying to entertain you. Yeah, well, you know, I think this is where the problem begins to blur out from anything scholastic or intellectual or even anything on the family support encouragement channel. It's a deep character problem. Mm -hmm. It's always been there to some extent. These are not new problems. But I, in my view, the, the pervasiveness of them is new. Mm -hmm. You mm -hmm. know, it's... Mm -hmm. um, I and, loved reading when I was 16. I loved it. And my friends loved it. We would talk about books, you know. And we had video games and we had the internet. But we read also. We looked, we used the internet to find cool books. It's how I found your books, you know, or, or Will Christopher Bear's books or Chuck Palahniuk's books. It was through actively seeking out cool stuff. And they all know anime though. According to a recent study, 94% of Gen Z knows anime, some kind of anime, but they don't read. Yeah. Well, the millennials, you know, reading started, you know, to really take a dive there. Um, mm -hmm. I, I don't know what the long range uh, implications of this will be, because clearly reading creates structures of mind yeah. and capabilities of learning. Then if you don't have that experience, there's just a whole world that's not going to be accessible to you. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then there, you know, we got a new kid who uh, I believe is Samoan and he and I spent the class period because nobody else was there today talking about, you know, Zeno's paradox and, All the, right. cool. and the, and the, which he knew, which he was telling me about, he was to, like, cause I had mentioned um, the ship of Theseus and so he was talking about that and then we just got it and he was, you know how students do this sometimes they're kind of info dumping like everything yeah. that, that they know. But that was, there are little moments like that that are heartening where I, I see that kid and I think, okay, you like learning, you like ideas, but man, one out of every 15, 20 I hear you, man. I, I I really think that it's um it's tough. And I, I think that people who feel that teachers are exaggerating the problem really don't know what they're talking about. Um this is a dire, dire situation. And also, as we've spoken of on other episodes, it isn't just this lack. These basic learning problems come hand in hand with oftentimes behavioral disorders, mm -hmm. uh, mood problems, socialization issues. It's not just one issue. There, These are people trying to grow up. I think you do have to give them a little credit that way. 
But I, I see that they're challenged on, on pretty much every level. Yeah. I don't see, for some of them, I don't see any working future. No, 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 I don't either. I, uh, you know, I mean, but hey, we need, we need people who can be security guards and fast food employees and work at Walmart. So there's that, I guess. It's just, you know, I. Well, I would argue, though, I think those jobs are very likely to be automated or roboticized. I think also the problem is that no one working on those levels can afford to live. No, they can't. They I mean, can't. I was shocked today. I used to go to um, had a really good friend who um, was a restaurant owner, a Vietnamese guy. He had a, a more, not a high-end, but a pretty successful mid-range Vietnamese restaurant in Chinatown and then immediately across from the university he had a very low budget sandwich and uh you know just noodles you know uh you know it was just very very student budget stuff right I used to be able to get a great Vietnamese sandwich there and leave a reasonable acceptable tip for four ninety five. Today, he went out, he, he closed that operation down because of COVID. And I do think COVID has a lot up to do with what we're talking about generally. I think that I keep seeing yeah. that as being uh, the, the nightmare gift that keeps giving. But today, I got a basic egg and bacon uh, bagel and a coffee for $12.95. And it's like... Uh, yeah. I mean, that's insane. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's nuts. Um, do you have a band for us today? I do. And it kind of fits into some of this because uh, they're very, very theatrical and performance driven. They call themselves the luxuriants. And their album is titled how far can we go before you burn us alive and their shtick is just radical wealth excess they wear real furs are dripping with jewelry they're just completely over the top they are a pro they are in every way they are prosecuting the obscenity of wealth but the kicker and what i like about them is that they their subtext is a scathing attack on fandom mm. and how desperate young people are to emulate this just crude scenario of extreme wealth at a time when you know, we're a caring and sharing people who practice kindness. Well, I don't think we really are. I keep seeing more outrageous female shapes created by plastic surgery. I see more and more uh, just gold plate teeth things, car excess. I think we've got a very, very weird 
spectacle celebrity culture. Mm-hmm. And this group is pushing the buttons as hard as they can with some really disgusting stunts. So they're more of a theater, music theater group, performance art than really any attempt at musicians. But their mission is to push people to a point of disgust where maybe some aspect of the culture, the TikTok generation, for instance, might look at themselves in the mirror a bit and go, this is pretty hideous, you know? That's what's missing right now, isn't it? Yeah. Artists who are pushing that as far as it can go. Um, I like that a lot. I like that. I think that I are there is there any real good musical or otherwise cultural commentary going on in the form of art, movies? I don't see any, anything. Any, anything at all that it, are cell phones too too ubiquitous now? They're too much a part of people's lives to really comment on them. It wouldn't be popular to do that. I think that's one factor. I think that there is no media uh, format platform that is central enough and strong mm-hmm. enough that mm-hmm. that's a must. I mean, there's no Rolling Stone in that mm-hmm. sense. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, think of Warhol's interview magazine. There were there were meeting grounds. Those weren't just publications. They were meeting grounds for ideas and reviews and critique. And you and I have spoken to about, you know, the loss of the great old record stores. Or, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, I checked out this uh, comic book shop called The Minotaur in, in Melbourne, And it's been around for a long time, and it's still surviving. I was pleased to see that. But you know what they're selling, mostly? Like, it's not books and graphic novels and vintage comic books. They're selling merchandise. They're selling toys. You know? Toys. Yeah. Endless toys. And those are collectibles. For adults, by the way. You know, I get it. But you're not going there to find some amazing hip thing that you'd never heard of. And right. the guy behind the counter is sort of creepy, but is really loving what he does and mm-hmm. maybe not making much money, but you know, you feel like you're in a meeting ground. You feel like you've come to a campfire. I had one of those when I was first out of high school and going to college when I was a freshman, there was atomic pop in Norman, Oklahoma and a good friend of mine, who I haven't spoken to in a while, but kind of drifted apart the way people do sometimes. But Rob, behind the counter there, had been in bands, you know, and he was just, he he always rolled his own cigarettes and we'd go outside and smoke and talk about everything. And he sort of gave me my graphic novel education, like Garth Ennis and Warren Ellis and Alan Moore and Grant Morrison and showed me all this cool stuff. And, uh, you know, now when I go, I think there's a, there's a, there's a comic book shop close by and it's really cool. It's cool. They have a lot of neat stuff in there, but you know, you, you walk in and it's a dude in a COVID mask who was very quick to let me know that I couldn't have Gus's drink in there. And I was like, all right, well, it, it's cool. 
it's the way of the world. And yeah. I think that the part of the band's critique about fandom, I think is interesting because what you and I are talking about is a very diff different kind of fan experience that was very passionate, very uh, elaborate, uh, somewhat hermetic, and absolutely a shared word of mouth, secret community. And I don't see those happening anymore. You know, I think that we've, the stores that used to do it, and stores were hubs of that, are so far, you know, they're disappearing. Like Amoeba Music in uh, uh, Hollywood, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But there were, there were tons of these places. And, you know, online shopping and reviews certainly is the biggest factor in my view. COVID, the hassles of going to places downtown, the fact that certain sort of edgy neighborhoods have just become have just fallen off you know did you ever go to borderlands books in san francisco i know no i'd never went to borderlands i used to really enjoy visiting dark delicacies in la that was a really good one of course powell's in portland but never borderlands well they're smaller but a really beautiful uh science fiction horror you know very genre uh out in the mission and i should i'd be interested to see how well they're they're going because it was a beautiful store it was pretty upmarket in in terms of its decor and it's it's just very comfortable and pleasant mm -hmm. and, and they had a cafe right next to it that you could under the same roof they were just doing everything right they're still open yeah, I'm pleased about that. I'm sure it's not quite the experience they used, but good for them, you know. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But on the other hand, I mean, they are uh, always a step above the uh, kind of comic book shops and, and CD record stores that we were talking about just a minute ago. Have you ever seen R. Crumb's uh, caricatures of comic book shop owners oh yeah yeah oh yeah it's so yeah. great you know yeah. that kind of just enjoyment of it and uh a whole social level of individual kind of has disappeared and this is one of the things that puzzles me about the whole tattoo thing and the gig economy kind of thing because it, it seems to me that that we've lost all of those in music, graphic novels, comic books, used books, a lot of that that intellectual, artistic, gig sort of underground person. What I mean, where is the underground anymore? I, I don't think it exists. I don't know, but I if it existed, I would love to be a part of it. You and I have said this numerous times on the show, but I would be very pleased to be an underground writer. Who is able to pull in a, a a decent 50 to 60K a year? That would be nice. That doesn't exist anymore, though. No, no. Not so far I as I know. I don't think that paradigm exists anymore. No. And I don't think it's going to come back. I think we're on no. to something else. And I think we just got to live with it.
Well, we sure do. I, uh, I'll put a pin in that because I do want to come back to it at some point, but we got segments to get to. So what is your aphorism for today? Okay. The model of human knowledge is the treasure hunt, the search for hidden algorithms of inherent structure. So pretty straight ahead on that, but I felt I needed to get, you know, get that in there after last week's. Um, the kicker, though, I think is, I mean, I, I love the idea of hidden algorithms. We, You and I have been mm -hmm. talking about that for quite some time. And that's uh, one of our ongoing themes. But I think the notion of inherent structure is is really important to uh, to touch base with because we hear so much today about everything being a social construction mm -hmm. um, and that there is no objective reality, uh, that nothing is inherent. Mm -hmm. It's all somehow human in invented or human hallucinated. And that's just simply not how humanity has approached the business of surviving and learning about the world. Mm -hmm. Certainly there are some, there is some truth to, to things being socially constructed, but I, I resent that, that framework because I think more often a better framework would be problem solving. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, clothing and shelter are obvious social constructions, but rather than just, make them sound so arbitrary it's like oh we'll just put some clothes on some animal skins and no it there are solutions to a problem but i think what we really always mean by you know knowledge certainly in a, in a scientific context is the belief in inherent structure the search for it mm -hmm. um the philosophy of it and when we lose base with that and really just step too far away from it i think we get the situations that we're in now mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. i think that's it i think that approaching things as problem solving is the default mode of humanity and what that makes me think of is that humans seem to move to one self-imposed purgatory after another because you would think after inventing a machine that acts as the sum total of most human facts, I won't say knowledge, I'll say facts, that we would then use that as a springboard. I'm currently attempting to, because I got this new phone, um, and I didn't port over any of my old phone onto it, because I really want to use my device instead of having my device use me. If I have to have one, I wanted to help, but you think you would think that people would take that approach more, but now we're in, we've moved from a sort of hardship purgatory into a more Huxleyan purgatory of orgies and dopamine and spectacle and disassociation. And I really think the way out is the way that it's always been the treasure hunt. Yeah. The problem solving. So what is my imaginative challenge for today? Okay. Well, this is, um, we've done a lot of, of really, truly uh, imaginative challenges of light that have given you a lot of creative scope. 
I thought we might get a little bit more serious this time. Because you are back teaching. And in addition to that instructor, Zen master kind of door opener academically, a lot of what you're doing is 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 mentoring. You know, you're you're a professional mentor. So I thought we'd ask you to kind of reveal more of your mentor profile, your character, your approach by putting you in a police car. You are an experienced beat cop and you are training a boot, a new recruit. And there's a bit of an age difference there. You can, you're mm -hmm. free to genderize that uh, younger recruit officer. Uh, give us a little bit of context. But I want you to imagine being out on the beat and a situation comes up where you are in pursuit of two perpetrators of some crime. And the boot does not follow protocol and stick with you, but goes off individually. So there is a break in protocol. There is potentially a disciplinary issue here, but there is behind the rules a very practical problem of survival on the streets, life and death. Mm -hmm. So you've got quite a range of possible responses. And I thought it might be interesting to for you to flesh out that scene in a crime novel sense, but then to give us a really good flavor of what you as the senior training officer here, how you would handle that individual. Mm. How hard line would you be? What would what you know, what would be your approach? Um, I'm curious to, uh, I'm, I'm certainly always curious about your parenting father style. We've talked a little bit about that. We've talked about the need for captaincy in teaching in the classroom and leadership that way. So I thought it would give you a chance to kind of flesh out yeah. what your leadership mentorship profile looks like. I like it. I can do that. All right. Picking up from last time. Let me pull up the note here. That was a doozy of an episode. I, I loved listening to that back. I really, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I always do, but I thought that one, there was a lot, a lot of things hopping. <laughs> was there ever one person who was the first to say, well, that's better than a poke in the eye with a sharp stick? If there was, how do you explain the dissemination pre-internet, pre-mass communications? That seems a bit far-fetched. If not, how did that expression and so many others come to be? This is one of the greatest mysteries of all. Bigger picture. Reseeing logos and mythos as numeros and hypnos. <clears throat> the computational mind the human capacity for logic, inductive and deductive reasoning, logos-driven analysis slash argument, and most especially, systemization 
simulation, and mathematical modeling must be considered finite. Anomalous individuals appear throughout history, challenging the limits of this capacity, extending the parameters, but the acceptance of delimiting parameters endures. The cumulative history of such endeavors is the essence of what we call capital H human, capital N, or I'm sorry, capital K, knowledge, and most colloquial capital S, science. A key element of this evolution is the refinement of technological resources, the latest of which is AI. The entire point of AI and the speculative notion of the singularity is that there are limits to both individual human computational mind and its cultural manifestations. AI defines those limits. Much of the, much of the matter resolves simply to cybernetics, speed of function, amount of data processed, the number of permutations and possibilities that can be managed. It's really Gary Kasparov versus Deep Blue. This remains the paradigm. By contrast, human imagination, the dream mind, is a very different story. There may be limits to this capability, but they seem immensely difficult to determine. On a very practical level, every night's dreaming may rewrite any, quote, rules, unquote, we try to formulate. Apparent repetition, even exhaustion of forms in the expressed sense of manifest cultural mythos, may be easily explained by social, political, and economic alg algorithms. At the levels of news, art, and commercial entertainment, the gatekeepers of the dreaming are now often accountants or their ilk. Precedent, social convention, and the inertia of habit are powerful informing forces slash constraints, but they shouldn't be confused with the dream mind capability itself. They're merely delivery and public performance algorithms based on fashion, expediency, and computational patterns of profitability. I feel like that's pretty well, I mean, that's well summed up. There are limits to human knowledge, but there, whether or not there are limits to human imagination is, is tough to see. But what you're talking about is the fact that practicality and being a part of, to bring systems back into it, being a part of a system feeds people into these problem-solving careers uh, where they're not necessarily cultivating anything. Cultivation exactly. might might be the word that we're looking Cultivation for. Cultivation is a beautiful word. Uh, you know, the idea of of a garden, you know. Uh, mm -hmm. we're, we're really, we're forcing people away from the garden, the possible gardens of imaginative richness and depth gardens mm -hmm. of dreaming. uh mm -hmm. what i call in that sense hypnos as opposed to um well mythos is beautiful but i think hypnos is kind of the personal side of that with mythos being the cultural expression of it but it really really strikes me that we are becoming more and more obsessed with the computational mind and I don't think it's any coincidence that AI is emerging so dominantly as a topic of conversation at minimum. Mm -hmm. uh, when it really is, it's kind of like Asperger's syndrome taking over our, our entire society. And I, I have some real 
fears about what AI might end up doing. I, I, my sus suspicion is that we're not heading for the dramatic, sinister scenarios of Skynet and the Terminator, but more a rather ludicrous Philip K. Dick uh, experience of neurotic machine intelligences. For example, uh, and I am trying to laugh about this, but it, it uh, it's concerning as well as, as funny. Mm -hmm. I'm beta testing uh, this one uh, language-based system. Did I mention this last? I don't know. I've, I've been thinking about you it. You did. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I'll, let, I'll harken back to it because I, I, it, it isn't. The question was simply, you know, do I need a laundry hamper? Why not just load the, the laundry machine and every once in a while run it? And I got the most dysfunctional pros and cons analysis that was just so completely neurotic. And I, I wondered, where did this come from? Where are these, you know, I mean, is this what's going to happen? So I think on the one hand, we've got this obsession with a certain kind of capability of human intellect and information process which is now completely overwhelmed because of the amount of information. So what do we do? Well, we turn to AI. My complaint, and I think that you're, you'd agree with this, is that we're, we're not just turning toward that problem solution frame. We are radically turning away from ancient patterns of dreaming, intuition, mm -hmm. uh, imaginative unlimited mind you know the kind of unlimited mind that terence mckenna you know would speak about osmosing with the cosmos to go back to my aphorism from last week and i think the implications of that are absolutely terrifying they're they're alienating on a psychological level they're dysfunctional on a social level they're all too clear in their uh, consequences when we look at art in any form today. You asked what, what's happened to it. Well, I think we've turned away, you know? We, we're now creating uh, placeholders, filler material based yeah. on old paradigms. But, I mean, think about, you know, Jack Kerouac called Charlie Parker a creator of forms, you know, and mm -hmm. a leader of music in the world night. How many people are creating forms? I mean, when mm -hmm. oh, I haven't seen that. All we see is repetition and and continuance of some really well, they're now tired forms, I think. I think rap is a good example. I don't think we're getting the renewal. Oh, it's so boring now. It's so boring. I heard I heard two kids rapping to each other in the hallway, which is something that kids did twenty years ago when I was their age. And back then, it had to at least rhyme. It had to. It was they. These kids were just mumbling at each other in a kind of <laughs> da 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 da. Hey, and I'm like, yeah. Don't even get me started on that. I th here's something 
to throw in there because I do like when you offered that solution uh, for education. So I'm curious about what the utopian vision might look like. I was at writing club after school and I'm working on these kids with something called a visual novel. I think I've told you about it. Yeah. And, you know, they're getting to that hard point where we can't outline anymore. You got to start writing. Uh-huh. So I sat them down and I said, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're in the library. It's relatively quiet. I want everybody to close their eyes. And we've all seen a lava lamp, right? And they say, yeah, we've seen a lava lamp. I'm like, okay. I want the inside of your mind to be like a lava lamp. And those floating masses, those glowing bubbles, those are your ideas. And they're floating around. Now, I don't want you to force any of those bubbles to be anything at all. I want you to let the bubble speak to you. And I want you to tell me the first thing that comes to your mind. And one kid said, CIA conspiracy. And then another one said, aliens. And then another one said, a random name. And, and I said, okay, okay, cool. Now, I want you to imagine those bubbles coming together, right? Picture those bubbles coming together. And it just started to click and words started coming out one after the other. And I said, just keep that, keep that feeling because this is as close as I can get to explaining to you what it feels like when you're writing and it's firing on all cylinders. It's always felt that way for me, like lava lamp bubbles coming together, mm -hmm. oscillation floating. And I wonder if classes like that or lessons like that might be a part of a utopian lost explorer's vision where the dreaming mind and human imagination is prioritized over human knowledge and AI. I absolutely think that that is what must happen for us to turn things around. And I think that there are, it needs to be a group activity. It needs that group sharing, that mosaicing. And it's kind of like creating a, an organic ritual, a ceremony that takes shape of its own. It begins to assemble itself. And I think this is where the idea of inherent structure really comes into play. We have an idea about that from a physics and chemistry point of view. And we have ways to talk about that. And we have, unfortunately, some very set frames for how that those disciplines, those perspectives work. And they're heavily based on mathematical description, quantification, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and a certain kind of inductive, deductive playoff that it's it served humanity very well. Mm -hmm. But we struggle the moment we move into other spheres, for instance, language, culture, psychology, the nature of story. I mean, how does a story actually form? You know, you do mm -hmm. group storytelling, and it's amazing to see how that works. But 
I always find that really, I do an exercise called Ludwig the Dachshund Who Believed. Mm -hmm. And uh, he's he's got a really happy life. But when he's out in the yard, the other dogs in the neighborhood always heckle him and give him a hard time about his short legs. So he has this fantasy that if he gets out of the yard and goes for a big enough walk, his legs will grow and he won't be laughed at anymore. So the story starts. Sometimes it's much more successful than others, you know, Mm -hmm. really is uh, an acid test or litmus test of imagination. No question. But like the telephone game, which I also use, one thing that really does come clear and it's meaningful to the students or the group, whoever I'm, I'm working with, it spatializes the language sharing. It spatializes the story. You see it moving around and you can actually you know, pinpoint like in the telephone game, you can pinpoint, well, who's the weak link in the chain here? When, when mm-hmm. did things start to fall apart? When did something new come on board? And by experimenting in this way constantly, we develop new paradigms, new models of the inherent structure of these more mysterious elements of, of language, culture, story, you know? Mm-hmm. And we I may like- be able to speculate about, you know, as, as the, the question that started it off, uh, you know, the ex- an expression, you know, figurative language, figure of speech, that's better than a poke in the eye with a, you know, sharp stick. Mm-hmm. We don't really have a coherent theory where any of these quirks of language come from. It's a complete mystery. But if we did some group speculating, some group dreaming, and really turned the imaginative mind loose on this, Mm -hmm. I think we would start to get we're not going to get the precision of, of, of physics or organic chemistry. We're not. But that's not the point. The point is to really get closer to it, to nurture it more, to, you know, that I was saying, well, you know, it's one thing to like music, but does music like you, you know, to get comfortable with these mystery forces. And then the lava bubbles start to take shape of their own. You know, it is magic. We have outsourced precision to machines. And when we're dealing with a machine, like an artificial intelligence, there comes a point where that AI can no longer be precise, where the answers get fuzzy. And as soon as things get fuzzy, that is the realm of human imagination. That's where we pick up the thread and keep going with it because we are fantastic explorers of the fuzzy and the immaterial and the imaginative. Um, the idea that we could be, that we could compete with the precision of machines is I think what has led to all these diagnoses of autism and Asperger's. Yeah, I agree. I, um, I absolutely agree. But you see what I'm saying? Like it's, it's making sense to me visually in my head right now that it's a picture 
Okay. You can, it can be anything you want. In my mind, it's an octopus and it's a beautiful, uh, you know, pen and ink drawing of an octopus. And when you get out to the end of those tentacles, it becomes a watercolor. Just that's humanity right there. Let the octopus do its thing. We, we will continue to sail the uncharted waters. I hope we will. I mean, I think that, that you're you're using the we in the sense of, of humanity at large. And I think that we've had great capability for that in the past. I, I think we're under challenge. Um, and to kind of carry on with some of these notes, the, the, the extension of this, I think, is immediately relevant here. I said hidden terrain. Mm -hmm. What appears to be mythic exhaustion the Jungian collective unconsciousness turned to a dust bowl, maybe a socially engineered fiction. I think this is constructed. I think that we have done exactly mm -hmm. what you said of measuring ourselves by the precision of machines. We've had an enormous self-esteem and William Jamesian spiritual crisis as a result of that. And the downstream consequences are both a literal and figurative autism that is now rampant. Yeah, absolutely. It doesn't need to be there. I think that we can, I think we can turn this around, mm -hmm. but I think it does mean it does take a new perspective on the mental health, mental illness industry. In other words, psychology, it's going to certainly take a kind of, real overhaul of education along the lines of what we were discussing earlier of a real shift uh, from fundamental paradigm mm -hmm. of fact-based education to skill-based. It has to be. It has to be skill-based where the answers to problems aren't answers at all, but are things that you can hold in your hand they're emblems yes you want you want to you don't want uh people to be able to necessarily solve a math question insofar as that is a tool in their toolkit to measuring out a great cabinet for example and i think that this would eliminate a lot of the procrastination and dithering that you see with students when it comes to work with people in general, because what this procrastination thing to me is it's nonsense because on one hand, if you, if you're procrastinating, it means that for some reason you don't want to do it and you need to figure out why, or it's something that is intimidating to you. Perhaps you need to figure out why, or it's something that has to get done to pay the bills. And then you need to just kind of do it, I guess. But I think that going into that imaginative realm is pretty much the first step to constantly be in a state of lava lamp vibing. I think that's the mode. Think how easy that would be to really shift that around. I don't accept that people, I mean, I think some people would feel very challenged very threatened, just not know what to do. If if that kind of Terrence McKenna <clears throat> approach was just open everywhere. But 
for me, I, I think that that what's interesting about this crisis of the computational mind overtaking all priorities of the imaginative dreaming capabilities of humans, where I see that really working is not in the rise of industry and the rise of factories and machines and people being turned into machines. I grant you some of that is, is certainly there as a problem. No question. Right. Right. But strangely for me, the thing that makes me more nauseous because when I've worked, I, I haven't had a lot of factory but experience, but I had some really important ones and I had really good relationships with my fellow workers and there was camaraderie and there was us against them. There were some good things. Where I see it really falling apart is that comic strip Dilbert and the TV shows The Office. Mm -hmm. uh, in the corporatized culture of, uh, well, men and women working together. So we get those, those gender conflicts. But people doing management, middle management. job mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh you've been a scathing critic of of you know the middle management idea mm -hmm. to me that's where things really just and that's the part of of society and the workforce that has just blown up mm -hmm. you know what what do those people do who knows who knows and in the sherlock holmes course that i want to run at one point one of the things that i think is so beautiful you know, Holmes has this capacity to look at someone and see by their hands or stains on their clothing what trade they're in. You mm -hmm. know, it's mm -hmm. very emblematic. It's very uh, apparent to him anyway. Well, we don't have that capability anymore because it's not apparent. A middle right. management in one industry looks just like a middle manager in another. Yeah. Everybody's the same. And that has killed the imaginative dreaming capability. Yeah, absolutely. All right. That'll do for the main body today. We got through got through a lot. Got through a lot of the we did. So that's good. We'll have more next time. We've got yeah, we got a couple of big exciting points for uh to carry on for next time, including I think a new uh well, an interesting angle on how the modern age might be understood in remarkably simple terms. So yeah. we've got the excitement there. That's good. I like I liked it a lot. Yeah. I was excited to talk. Well, I still am excited to talk about it. But all right. My my cop experience here. Yeah. One out of I twelve. Got one out of twelve. I got a I got a young rook. Uh the new recruit's name is Jeffrey Williams. Comanche Nation tribe member whose mother died of alcoholism at 40. He was raised by his uncle, unfortunately, another drunk, who fell into a bonfire and lost a hand as a result. We respond to a domestic disturbance call, and unfortunately, Williams knows the perpetrator. His name is Jay Rodriguez, who he knows from growing up back in the day. Jay had once had an affair with Williams' aunt, who couldn't be satisfied by her husband after the bonfire accident. Jay Rodriguez has been drinking White Claws and beat the hell out of his son for unplugging his PlayStation. After it escalates, 
into a shoving match. Jay runs out the back door through the prefab meth tragedy neighborhood behind him. And Williams gives chase. They disappear into a house where they are involved in a shootout. The bullets are pinging off the hundreds of wind chimes hanging from the ceiling. They finally engage in hand-to-hand combat and Jay is subdued by Williams. Now, Williams is probably not long for the police force after this. He's new and he's already been in a shootout, which unfortunately in the world you can't do without having some consequences. So I sit him down. He's up for review. He might not be on the force much longer. And he tells me the story of his past. He tells me about how he knew Jay Rodriguez and the grudge that he's held against him all these years. I tell him that the past is dead. Ancestors are to be venerated and our parents are to be forgiven. But if you spend your time trying to correct the past, you can never build the future. I tell him that I used to be like him and that I didn't like anyone around me or myself, but then my son was born. And if I had one regret, it's that I wasn't living my life for my son before he was born. I tell him to imagine there's someone who matters to him more than himself and to live his life for that imaginary person because you never know when that person might come to be. The end. Wow. Yeah. That's very, very interesting. That that was... Uh... I'm glad I assigned that challenge to you because it's very different than uh, what we've been doing of late, but it has so many elements that are signature Osborne. You know? <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I love that. I love the specifics of it. And I, I think the message of that is um, a really, really uh, quite moving delivery on the question of, of what your mentor profile, philosophy, approach. I I, I really, and I, I believe it too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's I see it a cute. lot. I see it a lot with these kids and I, I tell them some version of that all the time, especially if I, you know, overhear them talking about a, a party that they went to over the weekend or whatever. And I tell them, you know, be careful. Also, knowing full well that they're teenagers and they're going to do whatever they want to do. And I just say, just keep in mind that you'll be older one day and just keep it in the back of your head that there's a whole life in front of you that you have to take seriously. Otherwise you'll, you might be in a place. I don't know how I would have lived my life if I actually knew that Gus would be here one day. I might have done a few things differently, for sure. I might have taken a few things a bit more seriously, put in a little bit more hard work, um, but I didn't. So I don't know. I feel like it's good advice. I have two flashes as you were just talking just now. Mm -hmm. One, I flashed on not a static image of you, but more a dynamic filmic memory image of being in Portland out on a porch and yep. it's of course pouring rain. Of and I, I could just see how, how much you've grown and changed since then. Uh, and I'm really proud of that. I think you've really evolved in some very, very interesting ways. 
And Thank yet, there is that continuity of character. I don't feel when I when I see that image of you uh, smoking out on the porch with the rain falling in Portland, mm -hmm. uh, you are simultaneously a very different man, and and yet the same. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, I mean, you were a real tearaway in, in in those moments, but then. And if you haven't seen this, and if listeners haven't seen this, you just simply have to Google on it because it is such a treat. Sonny Bono, former husband of Cher, uh, they were, you know, a superstar duo, uh, singers. They had a hugely successful TV show. He became the mayor of Palm Springs, got into politics. And then he died, for, unfortunately, running into a tree while skiing. And somehow that makes me laugh. But he's the father of uh, Chastity, who has become, who's transi transitioned to Chaz. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but in the peak of it all, somewhere back in the, the late 60s, he, I think he got into trouble for tax evasion or something. And he got coerced into doing this long public service announcement ad about drugs. And it is so wonderful. It, it's like reefer madness times 10. He's wearing these absolutely intense orange silk pajamas. And he is high out of his mind. But he says things like, "But and one day you'll be the older generation." And you, it, you just—it is so wonderful. Promise me you'll you'll watch it. It's just—it's a joy. It's a joy, and it's it's evergreen. It it the terms of, of things may change. People may not be as outrageously dated as he now looks. But maybe not. Maybe that's just—it'll just change form. But his message is, you know, yeah, one day you'll be the older generation, you know, mm -hmm. uh, and and more young people need to hear that. I think that if we wanted to summarize in really hard hitting, practical social terms, the initial problems we started this episode off with, it really comes down to a failure of leadership, mentorship. You know, that's mm -hmm. really what's going on. Mm -hmm. I agree. On that, level. on that note, do you have a tool and a tip for us today? Uh, I do. I do. Um, the tool has two parts. One, I, I'm, I've been doing a lot of thinking about euphemism. I think it is one of the most peculiar language forms, concept forms, active in society. It's, it is active worldwide. We have pretty good insight into that. Its operational mechanisms are, are very peculiar. They work on the basis of shame, restraints, uh, all sorts of interesting anthropology sort of things going on. And social media has really uh, blown them up. So, but the first part of the tool is be very aware of anything that provokes a kind of snarkiness, a giggle or makes us feel embarrassed. And I think the one example that occurred to me was masturbation. Yeah. I mean, we know on the one hand that virtually everyone does it, or so we think. 
and yet we don't feel very open or comfortable talking about it. We don't feel very comfortable talking about its relationship to the consumption of pornography. Mm -hmm. um, but we don't, we, we can't even ask a basic question. For instance, is masturbation, which is same sex sex, is that homosexual then? You know, the old Woody Allen question was, don't laugh, it's sex with someone I love. <laughs> and we don't even feel comfortable asking that basic question of, well, in those, is, in those moments, is, is that an expression of, of homosexuality? Mm. So that's part one. Being able to look at euphemism, uh, I think it's one of the most important language forms that we don't give enough attention to. Um, people like John McWhorter do a lot with swearing and profanity mm -hmm. and um, dirty, dirty words, as they say. I'm all in favor of that. I think we need to look more closely at how euphemism works because it's a very dynamic and very insidious form. But uh, here's another one that I think I've been really trying for the memory and alertness book to be very articulate about private psychic experiences that I have in the hopes that I can trigger more thinking in other people. And I've been writing about a phenomenon of being overwhelmed by people. You know, we all have that experience. You know, we're just a little person in this huge, huge world. Well, the more I started to think about my experience of that, I realized it never for me in its acute form has anything to do with, with being in traffic. Sure, I get grumpy in traffic. Everyone does. But or in physical crowds. No, I mean, unless I'm feeling really under the weather, highly stressed, or in a foreign country, most of the time that's not the case. For me, the experience is entirely architectural. It's residential. It's driving past houses and, and thinking about, what would it be like to live there? Mm -hmm. And suddenly I get lost. Yeah. Um, I, I really feel there is a strange personal disconnect from physical bodies and crowds and many experiences where you think you would be overwhelmed. Right. For me, it's, it's about houses. I've often had the, the problem coming in from airports, particularly say coming in from JFK, you know, through yep. Queens to Brooklyn and looking at, at it's the apartment buildings. It's the yes. density of the apartment buildings or another strange being in a holiday area like the mountains or coastal areas and seeing a lot of for sale signs and thinking i know the scenario there a, a couple a family got really excited and jazzed up wanted to have this place and then the, a divorce or separation occurred i, I go into that whole thing Me and too. I, it's very peculiar I've never heard anybody put it like that, but I absolutely, when you said coming into JFK, that was the example that I was going to use, you know, being on the, you know, Jackie Robinson freeway and just seeing all of this life flash past you quickly. LA does it to me too. 
driving around LA. I'm, I used to do it in Portland. I did it on the drive to Taos, some of these little mountain towns along the way where, you know, the backdrop is this gorgeous mountain and you see a little house in the, I, mean, it's like, I wonder what that's, see, I wonder exactly. what that's like. I'm glad you're getting onto this. So there's two parts to this tool. And one is the benefit of trying to articulate these kind of quirky, eccentric, idiosyncratic, psychic experiences. Right. And then sharing them and, and realizing, well, there are other people have those ideas too. Mm -hmm. And then once, once we have that out in the open, you think, well, wait a minute. We're not talking about bodies and jostling of crowds. We're talking about evidence, physical evidence of shelters and structures and residences. And we're projecting into those lives. I wonder who lives there, you know? And I, I feel good having you validate that. And it gives me encouragement to think more deeply about other little psychic experiences or habits of mind. And I That's think good. we can do that with it's uh, well, we, we learn more about ourselves. And I think we also really share something with other people. We open up some doors for them to learn more mm -hmm. about themselves. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's my tool. My tip is um, it's a very much a self-acceptance uh, tip. And I think it, it clearly, uh, applies to people as they get older and going back to school this semester i i am starting to feel like something has really changed you know the students stay the same age in that dreamlike sense but i don't mm -hmm. but i also know that this is not age specific that people can have this experience and they do they start having it very very early and i think that the tip is how we negotiate with ourselves about it. And I put it very simply as it's okay to be nostalgic. I really think we can beat ourselves up about that. We can think that we're looking through rose colored glasses. We're hallucinating. We're imagining we're not being realistic. Um, I, I think we just need to relax about that and, and to be nostalgic for certain things in our our life uh and and maybe the periods of the of the the focus for the nostalgia shifts mm -hmm. you know it isn't just a junior high uh thing or high school or whatever maybe it's um it could be quite an interesting mandala maze map that includes very personal things but also bigger memories of tv shows movies you know um I think we just, in many ways, I think we should encourage it. Encourage the acceptance of it whenever that finds you. Don't go out of your way to be nostalgic. But if you get a wave of that, don't feel like you have to apologize for it or, or you know, run away from it. Absolutely. And, and, yeah. and be like a good friend. Absolutely. I am with you 100%. I love being nostalgic about things. I even like manufactured nostalgia. We hear old MIDI synths and yeah. sort of grainy VHS tape. I love that shit. Yeah, and, good, good. Um, I saw a video on TikTok yesterday of this older guy. And he his point in the video was, you know, I'm from Generation X. 
and I'm so tired of hearing Generation X talk about how we used to drink from the fire hose and ride our bikes over to our friend's house. He's like, there's nothing special about that. It's just what we did. If we'd had cell phones, we would have used them. And I'm watching this guy and I'm like, what is your point? Because you sound really stupid right now. You're not saying anything. I mean, it to me kind of seemed like a kind of spineless appeal to youth placating the way that they are today by saying, hey, we were no different from you. Oh, shut up. Shut yeah. up your ass. Oh, no. Like, it, it's, it, it's, it's not wanting to seem like a boomer or a Gen Xer. Yeah. It's really, yeah, yeah it's, it's, uh, what was it, what, you know, parenting as opposed to parenting. Yeah. It would be yeah. too much. And yeah. was, was it better? Yes. The way that I grew up was. Better. Yeah. 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 Baby. <laughs> it was. And, it was. Um, and because, I mean, if you were to have asked me as a teenager whether I I liked, I would have talked about how bored I was. Maybe I was mad at my parents, but I had no real issue day to day with what I did. The world was very cool. I would show you all of the cool music that I found online, and then I would play you a song that me and my buddy Eric made in his garage. And kids now, it's I ask them all the time, like, "What do you do? What What do you do?" They go home and get on their phone. The way I grew up was better. You know, every first class, there's always an organic reason for it. I won't try to put the whole thing in perspective. But I always ask things like, does anyone play music? When I started off like teaching in, say, 2012, 13, in a class of 25, there would always be five or six. Right. It's very possible to get a zero now, mm-hmm. you know, one, mm-hmm. you know, but it, it's just this passive uh, world of really smartphones. Yeah. Really is what's going on. I'm yeah. sure there are some other activities, but I think that when you look at uh, organized sports, uh, music, performance, it, it's it's getting smaller and smaller the number of, of participants. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, well, this kind of flows into the dream experience. Okay. Uh, I was thinking of the Victor Hugo line that dreaming is the aquarium of night, which is, I, I really love that idea because I love aquariums. And I, I've had a couple of cool experiences of being able to be in aquariums at night uh, in a couple of instances, well, illegally, uh, mm-hmm. and that was absolutely fabulous. But there's such mysterious places. Um, but have you ever read the H.G. Wells story, The Door in the Wall? No, I haven't. It's worth checking out. It's a three-part story, so it is a short story. It's, uh, it's the, the lead to uh, The Country of the Blind. But it's widely considered to be his uh, one of his best stories. It's um, the the narrator is told a story by uh, a colleague and and friend and former uh, co student about the discovery of this mystical secret garden 
behind a green door in a white wall. And it's quite lovely. There, there's, there's a beautiful description to it. But this world is magical beyond belief. And it is a beautiful uh, expression or architecting of, of the dream experience. And it creates a tremendous lifetime problem for uh, the narrator's friend because he can never get back to that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In fact, really avoids it and just not able to face that disillusionment of, of having to leave the garden, come down off the high, as we've talked about with dreams. And then I was going through my notebook and I found another quote that I often think of from D.H. Lawrence, that the purpose of art, particularly the novel, is life kindled into vividness. So Lawrence goes directly after the vividness of the door in the wall secret garden that we lose upon waking because the dreaming mind is ushered back to what? And I've been thinking about that. And I, what I wrote down very early one morning is psychic mythic realities and needs are subsumed primarily by socioeconomics. I think that's the way I, I phrased it in my grogginess of that's the world that we return to. And I had my own beautiful single image focus on this because I came out of a series of dreams that there were just absolutely sensual, erotic, amazing, uh, beautiful women and sculptures that were alive, but on and on, all sorts of things. Mm -hmm. And coming up out of that into the so-called computational mind world, the image I took away was a not ludicrously oversized, but definitely like a family value-sized jar of generic peanut butter. And I thought, my God, there you go. That is just, you know, kind of warm and friendly, nothing evil or toxic, but gluggy and not like a, a, a known brand like Skippy or Peter Pan, a generic, you know, down market, mass shopping, Costco, Walmart. Best choice. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I thought somehow we have seen our intimate honesties subverted by imaginary, socially constructed needs. And I think that's a flip on the notion of where imagination and social construction is. And I think if we leave it there, we can maybe start thinking about how we can turn that perverted or subverted imagination back on itself and, and get back to the, the garden behind the door and the wall.
and leave leave the office and the water cooler and social media and big dumpy jars of no-name peanut butter. I love it. Perfect place to stop. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everyone. Be safe. Be well. Stay warm.